All right, well, it is a great thing to gather here. I'm uh, becoming quite fond of our outdoor gatherings. Uh, it's getting hotter and hotter, uh, but we're going to persevere, and I just want to commend you. Well done, braving the heat, and all you volunteers that are getting here early and setting everything up. I have not heard a complaint, and uh, maybe that's happening at home and, and around the dinner table, but I haven't heard anything, and it has been remarkable to see the church just kind of rally uh, to make this work, and I love it. I, I love gathering with all of the church, all together at the same time, and uh, a thrill that we can do it again this morning, even though there are several of you, I don't even know if you're here or not, because like behind the tree over there, um, yeah, hopefully we can catch up later. Well, I want you to grab your Bibles, and I want you to open up to the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we started back in January a series through the Gospel of Mark, working through it, and we took a little break to address some things going on in our world, and then we jumped into what we uh, like to do over the summer. We like to take a, a trip to the Psalms and kind of take a look at what God has revealed there, and now we're going back to the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to be setting our minds on the person of Jesus Christ. There really is nothing that compares with the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's no subject that you could set your mind on that it would be more edifying, inspiring, motivating, convicting than to set your mind on the person of Jesus Christ. That is our intention of preaching through the gospel is that we continually put Jesus Christ before us and think about him and meditate on him. And I guarantee that as you do that, you will be continually surprised by who he is. Many of us have a caricature of Jesus that's in our minds that we have come to know, that we have come to believe, uh, and we actually get to the scriptures and we realize that he's far greater, more amazing than we have ever imagined. And so we have to get back always to the word of God and let the word of God tell us who Jesus is and be comforted and helped and encouraged and inspired and motivated by him. We ended uh, back in I can't remember, back at the end of May, in uh, the uh, beginning of chapter 3 in the Gospel of Mark, and rather than just picking up right where we left off, I figured we'd do a little bit of review. We've had several new families. Some of you are newer families, and you didn't even know we were in the Gospel of Mark. Well, we are, and now we're going to jump back in. And those of you who have been with us, I think some review won't hurt. It'll help us kind of get our uh, footing back in the Gospel, and then we'll be able to start sequentially going through it again. So turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. Here's what I want to do. In chapters 1 and 2, we've seen some big ideas presented to us about the person of Jesus Christ. This Gospel is written, again, to show Christ, to just show who He is and what He did and what He's like, and you're confronted with uh, the person of Christ, and you get to the end of the book, and you see what he has done for humanity and some of the significance of that. But Mark doesn't uh, provide a ton of explanation. It's the shortest gospel that we can read in the New Testament, and as we read through it, we realize this is action-packed, one thing after another. Here's what Jesus did, then he did this, immediately then he did this, and it goes through, and we've just got to watch. Uh, it's almost like a uh, an action film. We got to watch what's happening. We see what Jesus is doing. And as it goes on, we realize who this man is. So we're going to do a little review and we're going to look at three big ideas 
three big ideas that we've encountered about Jesus in the first two chapters. All right, so three big ideas, and we're just going to jump straight in to our first big idea. Here it is, if you're taking notes. Our first big idea that we're seeing here is that Jesus has no rivals, so we should worship him. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. Chapter 1, verse 1 starts like this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You might say there's not much there, certainly not much action, and let me just unpack for you what is being said in this very short verse. We are being introduced to Jesus. That name, Jesus, was given to Jesus by God himself. It is a kind of Greek version of the Hebrew name for Joshua, which means Yahweh saves. That Yahweh, God revealed himself in the Old Testament with the name Yahweh. Joshua means God is salvation, and Jesus is the Greek form of that name. And so Jesus comes on the scene. He is named Jesus because God says God is salvation. That is what he's communicating through his name. Then we get that word Christ. No, Christ is not his last name. Christ, the Greek would be Christos, is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word for Messiah, which means anointed one. And so to call Jesus the Christ is to say that he is the anointed chosen Messiah. He is the one that God has chosen to be the king of the world, the ruler of the world, specifically the one that was promised to Israel to return to set up the kingdom of God. Jesus is the Yahweh of the Old Testament. He is the God who saves. He is the Messiah who will set up a kingdom. And then it says right there, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And let me just tell you, this is an incredibly bold claim, an outright claim to divinity. This is not hint, hint, this character that I'm introducing might be God. The Son of God is to claim that he is one in nature with God. He is co-eternal with God, co-equal with God the Father. And so this very short introduction, we are getting the idea that Jesus is an unrivaled, unparalleled individual, that he is in fact God himself, the one who will save, the Yahweh of the Old Testament, the Messiah that was promised to Israel. And then you get to these first verses quoted in the Old Testament in verses 2 and 3. You can see that there as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. You see that? It says, he actually quotes from Malachi 3, verse 1, and Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. He quotes, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. What is the voice going to cry? Look at the end of verse 3. Prepare the way of who? The Lord. Make his path straight. In other words, who's coming? The Lord. In fact, the Old Testament way that is said is make way for Yahweh. The, the God who has revealed himself in the Old Testament is now going to enter his creation. John the Baptist is meant to come and announce that he's coming. This, friends, is to say that Jesus is Yahweh, the coming one, the holy God of Israel, the creator, the one who called Abraham, the one who gave the law at Sinai, the one who has revealed himself as the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, uh, the creator of all things is entering the world, and that person's name is Jesus. 
He is Jesus Christ. And so from these very first verses, we learn this. Jesus is unrivaled. Jesus has no parallels. Jesus is unlike anyone you've ever met. He is the only one who deserves our worship and praise and honor. And because he is so unique, the divine God incarnate, we ought to worship him. He goes on, Mark is displaying a reason after reason why he is, has this title, why he is to be worshiped. You see in chapter 1, verses 9 to 11, he gets baptized. And God the Father speaks from heaven and says, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. In the immediately following section, verses 12 and 13, Jesus faces off with Satan in the wilderness and does not fall to the temptation that Satan brings him. He goes and he starts preaching the gospel of God in verses 14 and 15. Verses 16 to 20, he has the authority over the hearts of men to demand their full allegiance, and he's doing that. This is God incarnate, come into the world. He has no rivals, so worship him. He heals the sick. He casts out demons. He is compassionate and merciful. He teaches with authority. He draws all the crowds. People can't ignore him. He is unrivaled. He is unparalleled, and so we worship him. If we're going to be creating a Mount Rushmore of biblical figures, Listen, we cannot put Jesus in that Mount Rushmore. If we put Moses and we put David and we put Paul, we can't also throw in Jesus if he's just one of the others who are in the biblical storyline. He is utterly different, unparalleled. He is the God over every figure in the Bible. He is the creator of every person in the Bible. He oversees all his world as a sovereign king. And in Mark, we are realizing as we read that the creator God is entering his creation to be the savior of the world. He's in a class of his own. And so let me ask you this as we start to think about application. Where is Jesus in your life? No, really, where is Jesus in your own life? Mark's presentation of him is that he is to be worshiped He is to be adored. He is to be treasured. He is to be admired. He is to be trusted. He is to be obeyed. He is to be listened to. He demands full-hearted allegiance, and we ought to give it to him unreservedly because he is God incarnate, our creator and sustainer. Why would we withhold anything from him? Where's Jesus in your life? Some people claim to know Jesus, but they never really have even read his word. Some people claim to love Jesus, but they don't have any concern of obeying him. Some people have added Jesus as kind of a marginal feature of their life as they continue to pursue their own ambitions. They add Jesus to the margin. I think Jesus will be happy with that. Some people put up their own ambitions, their own careers, their own lives as the sun of their universe, and Jesus is some orbiting moon that has some distant relevance, but not any immediate relevance. Let Mark correct you this morning. Jesus is your creator. Jesus is your God. Jesus demands your worship. Jesus ought to be the sun around which the entire universe orbits and including your life. Your life and my life ought to be centered on the person of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, is it? Is Jesus the center of your life? 
Is Jesus the center of your work, that you work not just to get a paycheck, but you work as an act of worship to the King of Kings? Is Jesus the center of your marriage, that it's a topic that often comes up because that's what you're living for? When you sit around the dinner table with your family, is Jesus the center of that? The object of discussion, the object of worship? What's your life being built on? Because what the scriptures teach is that God has entered humanity, he's come into the world, and he has called full allegiance to all his creation. A marginalized Jesus is a blasphemed Jesus because it puts him to the side and treats him as something other than what he actually is. Because what he actually is is King of kings, Lord of lords, who demands and deserves your full-hearted worship and devotion. Are you giving it to him? Are there idols you've given your life to? Here's our second big idea that we encounter as we start reading the Gospel of Mark. Second big idea is this, that Jesus has a message, so listen up. (laughs) Jesus has a message, so listen up. Just look again at the very first verse of the very first chapter. You see it there. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. The Gospel. What's a Gospel? A word we know means good news or glad tidings. It's also, though, something fundamentally that's an announcement. Not first and foremost something you do. It's not first and foremost something you obey. It's first and foremost a message that is announced. It is news that is proclaimed. And so from the very first verse of this, we are seeing that what God is doing, what Christ is bringing, is an announcement, a message of something that has, is going to be accomplished and in our day has already been accomplished. You see what John the Baptist is meant to do. You see here in verses 2 and 3, the prediction of John the Baptist coming to prepare the way. What is he called in verse 2? He's called a messenger. That means, of course, that he has a message. And you see in verse 3 that he is called the voice of one crying in the wilderness. That means he is a voice, that he has a message, that he's crying out. God is preparing Jesus to enter the world, and he has a message. He has an announcement, and he's raising up John the Baptist to preach. You go down to chapter 1, verse 7. What does John the Baptist do when he starts his ministry? And he preached. He is preaching the gospel message that God has given him about the coming king. Jesus then comes on the scene in chapter 1, verse 14. John gets arrested, it says. Jesus came into Galilee. What is he doing? Proclaiming the gospel of God. He's got a message too. God has a message for humanity. God is a God who speaks. All idols are silent. All false gods are mute. But the living God speaks. And he raises up people to speak for him through his word. John the Baptist, then Jesus himself, and all through the ages, God has raised up the preachers of his word to continue the message because fundamentally we need to understand this reality. Jesus comes with a message. So we ought to listen up. Some of us kind of get this this wrong a little bit. Uh, We often emphasize the reality of Jesus' miracles and his healing power. And we would never want to minimize that because as soon as you start reading Mark, you see that he does heal. He is so compassionate that when the people come and they're hurting, he is healing and he's providing solace to people who come with their ailments. But I want to show you something. Is that why he came? To heal? 
Is that the primary reason he came was just to take away all sickness? Look at chapter 1, verse 38. Everyone's coming to look for him. Everyone's crowding around him. And Jesus is uh, confronted by his own disciples. And they say in verse 37, everyone's looking for you. And Jesus replies to them in verse 38, let us go on to the next towns. You might say, how heartless, Jesus. There's a whole bunch of sick sick people at your door. They don't want to be healed, Jesus. And Jesus says, let us go on to the next towns. Why? That I might preach there also. Why? For that is why I came out. That is why I came out. I got a message, and people need to hear the message. And if all I do is heal bodies, I will never give them the message that can heal their souls. And so you will read, if you mark every time you find Jesus preaching, you will be marking your Bible a lot. Chapter 1, verse 21, he came into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. Verse 22, they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught as one who had authority. Chapter 1, verse 39, he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Chapter 2, verse 2, a huge crowd gathers together so that there, there is no more room, not even at the door. What does Jesus do in response to a big crowd? And he was preaching the word to them. Chapter 2, verse 13, he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. Apparently, Jesus has a message that is so urgent, so life-transforming, so utterly important to what God is doing in his redemptive plan, that wherever he goes and every chance he gets, he's preaching, he's teaching, he's helping people understand something. This is a message that cannot be dismissed ignored, and certainly must not be misunderstood. This is why, church, by the way, we value preaching, expository, expositional preaching, because God has a message for humanity. We don't have the right to tamper with it, change it, tweak it however we like. We simply must say what what God has already said. Jesus came teaching, and now the church has that same teaching ministry, and we teach the Word of God. We teach the gospel to anyone who would listen. Could you imagine, by the way, getting this message wrong? Uh, we went up uh, on vacation last month. We're sitting around a campfire. And one of my daughters has the great idea, hey, let's play telephone. You ever played telephone? Everyone has played telephone at some point in their life. And so we sit around the campfire, and we're playing telephone. They come up with a message, and the message is whispered into the ear of one person, and that person is meant to whisper it into the ear of the next person. And what happens when you get to the end? You know what happens, right? The message is utterly different from how it began. The message my kids make up are already crazy in the first place, so it doesn't make any sense to begin with. But when we play it, part of the game is you try to see how different the message becomes by the end. And then when the final person says the message, we all laugh, we giggle. He's like, no, that's not what I said. And then we say what was actually said. And then we do it again for round two. That's the point of the game. Listen, we must not change the message that Jesus has given the church. We cannot. It is not a game that we're playing. In telephone, the changes make laughs. If the church changes the message, that ends up 
in the destruction of human souls. And so we dare not tamper with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We say only that which has been said. And here it is. Look at this. I wanted to show you in chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. John's arrested. Jesus comes preaching. Look at verse 15. And Jesus is saying, here's a, here's a summary statement of Jesus' message to the world, God's message to humanity that cannot be tweaked. He says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. I want you to hear something. Jesus has a message, so we must listen up. Christianity is not salvation through moral improvement. Christianity is not salvation through religious exercise. Christianity is not salvation through fanatic devotion or through good works. It is through believing God's message. It is through receiving by faith God's message. And here, what Jesus demands of the world is contained in really two words, repent and believe in the gospel. You must repent and believe. This is the message we cannot get wrong. And yet, isn't it sad that often in presentations of the gospel, the word repentance is left out? The word repentance and the call to repent is sometimes just eliminated from any gospel presentation. We talk a lot about believing in Christ, but what does it mean to repent? Because that's the first word Jesus is saying about what we must do. How do we respond to the gospel message? Repent. The word means turn around. The word means 180. It's a turning of uh, your life around and now renouncing the kingdom of self that you've been living for and adopting the kingdom of God, the king himself, as the new king that you live for. To repent is to declare moral bankruptcy. To repent is to say to yourself, I fire myself from the job of running my own life. I am no longer in the driver's seat. I now declare allegiance to Jesus Christ. I'm turning from my self-salvation. I'm turning from selfish ambition. I'm turning from self-leadership. And I'm turning to Jesus and I'm saying, all my hope is in you. You are my Lord. You are my master. You are my king. Save me. Lead me. Guide me. Your word is now my guide. I'm looking to you, God. There's no other way to be reconciled to God except to repent. Have you repented of your sins? Many of us have said, yeah, I believe in Jesus, and I, I believe that he died and rose from the dead. But have you repented? Have you reoriented and restructured your life to be following Christ? Not as a work to get to earn anything from Christ, but as a result from the faith that you say you have. Because that's what repentance is. You embrace him for who he is. And suddenly the rest of the world just turns to trash before your eyes. And you want Christ. And so you turn from all else. I've read the, the Little Pilgrim's Progress with my kids a few different times. And I'm always struck by these two characters. Their names are Formalist and Hypocrisy. And they try to get on the, the road to the celestial city. But they don't, don't go through the right gate. They don't go through the right gate. They, try, they hop over the wall and they get walking. 
and, and they're walking with the, uh, the, the sojourners for a little while there on the same path, and they look like every other person on the pilgrim path. But they're not going to be let into the celestial city because they didn't come through the right door. There's only one door to reconciliation to God, and that is through repentance and faith. Turning from all else to trust in Jesus Christ. Have you repented? Has your mind embraced the lordship of Christ, the filthiness of your own sin, the desperate need you have of God's grace? Has your heart experienced the sorrow of failure, the grief of sin? Has it been humbled before a holy God? And then have you, in an act of defiance against the call of the world, turned from those things and placed yourself at the feet of the Savior and devoted yourself to him? And have you embraced him by faith? Have you embraced him as your loving Lord? Have you embraced the reality that in him and him alone your sins can be totally forgiven? Your sins can be washed clean. You can be made white as snow. Christ can be your treasure. Have you entrusted your soul to him to forgive and to cleanse you and to see you home safely to heaven? You see, Jesus has a message. We gotta listen up. We don't have the right to tamper with it. And right here at the very beginning, Jesus has a message that calls us to repent. Have you repented of your sin? The third big idea that we found all through chapter two is this. False religion is deadly, so believe the gospel. I encourage you to go back and read chapter two again and ask yourself, what do the Pharisees believe? Just do that. Uh, what is it that the Pharisees actually act like? Uh, what is it that they actually believe? What is it that actually motivates them? And you'll start to unearth some of the features of a false religion. And sadly, sometimes this false religion that we look at the Pharisees and we point our finger and we say, how could they possibly ever believe that? And yet, if we're honest, we could believe or we can see that there's sometimes Phariseeism in our own hearts. And if we're not careful, it can creep in and it can control us. In fact, it can actually control a church if we are not believing the gospel. False religion, however, we're seeing here is deadly. Let me show you three features of a false religion just briefly from this passage. First of all, false religion can't see its own sinfulness. This is what you get from the Pharisees. I mean, read the Pharisees in chapter 2, and you'll realize that they have no concept of their need of grace. And so they aren't able to extend grace to anyone. Uh, you see that they put sinners in a different category, and they put themselves in a category of uprightness and holiness. Look at chapter 2, verse 16. The scribes of the Pharisees, it says, when they saw that Jesus was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? You know what's implied in that statement? Why does he eat with them, those guys? They're filthy. We're not. You see what's implied? The implication of the statement of these Pharisees is that sinners are in a different category than them, that they are somehow more upright and good. And so this is the first mark of all false religion is that it really has no idea of the total depravity of man. It has no idea of the utter sinfulness of man. Uh, they think that sin is uh, more... Uh, or perhaps best described as a mistake that's been made, or sin is something that happens external in my circumstances, 
but they fail to see the inward heart corruption that is sin. False religion does that. And that can even creep into churches, any church that's afraid to talk about the reality of sin and the need of repentance is denying a fundamental truth that's necessary for us to understand the gospel. False religion denies the indwelling power of sin. That's what the Pharisees did. Secondly, false religion adopts formalism, or you could call it externalism. Uh, Because it's not really uh, willing to address the inward issues of the heart, what, what false religion does, it creates externals, rituals, things you do to impress, things you do to impress God, and things you do to impress others. It's a kind of formalism. In Jesus' day, some of the things they did were they fasted, and they expected Jesus to be fasting too. Uh, They kept the Sabbath with meticulous detail, and they expected Jesus to too, and he was not willing to conform to their false standards of righteousness. But what they did was they wanted to cover up their sin, and they did so by plastering on false external forms of righteousness. They were rule keepers. I want you to hear this. Sometimes the people who are farthest from God are the best at keeping the rules. They're just so good at keeping the rules. And they do so, so they never actually have to address the issues of their heart. It's so desperately scary to admit who you really are on the inside that you'll do anything to convince yourself you're not that bad. And so you'll plaster onto your life various external forms of righteousness, and you'll convince yourself you're actually not all that messed up. Whereas the gospel starts by saying, hey, you need to repent. And what repentance means is you need to fully reorient your entire life. You don't just need to turn over a leaf, (laughs) just tweak a few things here and there. We are so bad that we need to repent and hand our lives over to Jesus because he and he alone can actually change us from the inside out. So false religion, what it does, it denies its own sinfulness. It adds on external forms of godliness. And then thirdly, and this is the devastating result, it misses Jesus just completely misses Jesus. Oh yeah, sure, Jesus is a, is a name that often false, false religious people will adopt and they'll talk about Jesus. But the real Jesus, the scripture Jesus, is one that's ignored. I mean, you could see it, look at chapter two. Jesus heals this paralytic. The paralytic has faith. Jesus says in verse five, your sins are forgiven. And what happens? Verse 6, the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? You see what's happening there? It's not that they questioned sins could be forgiven. They believed sins could be forgiven by God. They just didn't think Jesus was God. They didn't think Jesus had the authority and power to forgive sins. They missed who Jesus was. When you're dead set on your own personal self-righteousness, when you're adopting forms of righteousness externally, you're not willing to address the heart, you will miss Jesus just like these Pharisees did. Because you won't see any great need to address the deep issues of your heart. You won't see any need to have a Savior who can change you from the inside out. If you're not aware of the internal depths of sin, why have a Savior who addresses the heart? You'll have a Savior who makes life easier for you a prosperity gospel that is no gospel at all, a Savior that you ask for things 
You ask things from him so you can have a nice and convenient life. See, there are false gospels out there that deny the depths of sin. They promote externals to impress, and they miss the heart of the Christian message. Well, what do we do? By grace, we embrace the reality that we are much worse, much worse than we ever dared imagine. That our sin runs much deeper than we ever dared think. And that we are more helpless, unable to do anything about it than we ever would have dared think. But you know what the gospel is? That in Christ, we can be more loved than we ever dared hope. And we can experience a full forgiveness than we ever thought was possible when we come to him not trying to impress him with our externals, but by laying our lives on the table and saying, here I am, a wretch. Here I am with all my filth. Here's the internal struggles of my heart. We lay him at the feet of Christ. And Jesus is gentle. Jesus is faithful. Jesus is compassionate. Jesus is merciful. And he will love and he will redeem and he will forgive. It is amazing gospel. How will he do that for our sins? Well, the gospel of Mark will go on to say that he will go to the cross, that he will suffer and die on the cross, and that on the cross the Father will pour out his wrath upon Christ, and that Christ will willingly take on that punishment on the cross. He will die there as if he were a sinner, though he'd never sinned once, and he will rise from the dead, and as the risen Savior he will offer himself as salvation to anyone who turns from their sin in repentance and embraces him as their Lord and Savior for the forgiveness of their sins. He will do that freely to everyone who comes, and that's the gospel. And so we try to dress ourselves up with false religion. We will miss Jesus Christ. So here's the message of the first two chapters of Mark summarized, I believe. Jesus has no rivals. Worship him. Adore him, treasure him, and reorient your whole life around him. He has a message, so listen up. And that message is repent. Don't live for anything else, but turn to him and believe his promises. And thirdly, don't get caught up into the religion of the Pharisees, which is all about denying of the internal problems of sin and then adopting the external forms of righteousness, which are not true righteousness at all. Give your life to Christ. Be his disciple and follow him where he leads. As we go through Mark, I think we're going to continue to see a portrait of Jesus that is so utterly surprising that he will win our hearts and that we will be compelled to follow him with everything we've got. Amen? Let's pray and then we'll sing in response to this message. So Lord, thank you for revealing Christ to us in your word. We confess that we have rivals sometimes in our hearts, idols that we worship, but we want to repent and turn from those and turn to the living Christ. And Lord, we want to be real. We don't want to be plastering on this false religiosity that does not impress you or anyone. Lord, we want to be honest and open before you and before one another. Help us to really believe the gospel and to give our lives to following you. 
We can't do that except by the help of your spirit. So, Lord, empower us, encourage us for your name's sake. In Jesus' name, amen.